Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. When people hear Italian Renaissance, they probably think of a few key people or works of art, Michelangelo's David, for example, or da Vinci's Mona Lisa. But how did Western society transform so dramatically from an era once known only as the Dark Ages into a golden age of art, philosophy, and prosperity, and in such a small geographical area? Today, we're going to explore the creation of that artistic environment. Let's begin. Okay, here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Hi, nice uh, to be back. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you back. Yeah. I, I think you started pushing to be back on the show as soon as... Uh, as soon as Phil got his fourth episode. As soon as Phil got his fourth episode. <laughs> so now that you're... Now Lost you're the throne, Phil. And uh, you don't feel like it's... I'm going to get Phil on like next month. Just Aww. a mess with Aww. Just a mess with me because I need to be messed with more. Yeah, that's exactly what you need in your life, right? Mm. No, no. It'll be a while until Phil's back. Uh, I've got the next couple months lined up, and uh, Phil is not one of them. So Awesome. I love hearing this uh, meta podcast behind the scenes stuff. I really do. I have no idea if anyone's interested in this, but you're... But I'm here, so who cares? It, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're here today to talk about uh, the Italian Renaissance. Ooh. Yes. Which, boy, if there ever was a, a hazy definition of a subject, this would Yeah, be this it. one seems like it's broad-reaching. A little bit, but that's um, okay. And my foreknowledge of it comes very specifically from like high school art history classes. Oh, but I remember and like way. playing Assassin's Creed two like years ago. <laughs> yes, Assassin's Creed, the most historically accurate video game series <laughs> of all time. I mean, it's the Leonardo da Vinci buddy cop video game. <laughs> uh huh. He's definitely that. up in there. Yep, for sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and everything in that game definitely happened. Yep. Asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a fun game, but yeah. Italian Renaissance is an interesting topic, especially for the reason that there are a lot of historians that would argue that we shouldn't even be talking about it as though it's a thing. Oh, awesome. Why, why waste our time? I'll okay, bye. The Italian <laughs> Never mind. Episode canceled. Basically, personally, I disagree. I think that that's a, a ludicrous way of looking at this because their main argument is that most of the stuff that we're going to talk about today mm -hmm. is going to be very important for like 2% of the population. And oh, like okay. at least twenty or at least seventy five percent of the population are still going to continue being, you know, poor Italian farmers out in the countryside. And they, oh well, yeah, but I mean, couldn't that be said for a lot of the subjects? Yeah, that absolutely. we discussed. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's it's that combined with the fact that it's a it's a lot of what we're going to be talking about is very uh, cultural or intellectual. Yeah, and there are a significant number of historians 
it's getting better. That debate the importance that, of that sort of thing. Yeah. Because it's sort of like a fad. Yeah. Well, not even a fad. It's just more like, why are we talking about things like um, cultural ideals or or even the development of certain artistic styles, things like that? Okay. Um, why should we bother talking about that in the same context as you know, for example, political history or military history or things. Well, like, it's, it's all intertwined. I, I know, I'm a layman my, here. You're making my argument for me. <laughs> I know, and I'm just a layman. I don't know. That's but. fine. No, no, no. I, that's what I'm saying is is that I, I absolutely think this should be talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys are stuffy and probably hate fun. Or at the very least, have a very narrow idea of what history actually means. Because over the last 50 years or so, there's a bit, been a big move towards putting more importance on social history, which I think is a really good thing because, you know, it gives us a little bit better picture of what the other 99% of the population is I was going to say, it's much more relatable to us civilians. Yeah. (laughs) We're not making plays in our society generally. (laughs) Exactly. So basically the time frame that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to put like a very rough couple of numbers on here. Oh, yeah. Just to give us some, some context, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, when I kind of came up with this idea, I wasn't looking for anything hard and fast. I just kind of like the 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 one side of it that I knew I've kind of enjoyed learning about and uh, sure. would like to broaden that. Yeah. And Doesn't I mean, have to be specific. We're going to talk about stuff outside of this range, like 100% for sure. I can mm-hmm. already tell you that. But basically what we're talking about right now is Italy between about 1350 and 1500 CE. Okay. So, you know, again, that's th- those those start dates and end dates are hazy because we're talking about a social movement because yeah, a lot of these things are so nebulous. Like they're not, they don't have a hard fast point of, of ignition that you can't really say where a certain say painting technique, for example, necessarily was first right. Done. Because some Renaissance hipster was doing it way before it was cool. <laughs> yeah. It, it basically. Yeah. And, yeah. and, probably and it only became adopted by the, the mainstream 50 years later. Well, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we'll get around to some of the difficulty in pinning down the, the start dates for stuff like a few that specific later. hipsters. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but you know, in, in general, we are talking about a very, very soft set of dates here. Basically to set the stage though, Italy in the late, middle ages we are talking about a system of city states which is basically that each uh, major city center kind of controls the land directly around it mm-hmm. and the farther out from the city that you get the less direct political control you really exert until there's kind of a theoretical midpoint between two major cities where the the influence of one takes over the influence of the other the spheres and, of influence <laughs> yeah basically mm-hmm. but you know realistically it's it's mostly centered in those urban centers and outside of that there are a lot of people who have very loose allegiances and could probably be persuaded to go one way or the other depending on who has the bigger army and who's angry at them right now. <laughs> fair enough <laughs> <laughs> allegiances are, are are very fluid at this point let's mm-hmm. put it that way italy in the 13th and 14th centuries really started booming as an economic power especially in the north because you have cities like Florence especially but also Venice uh, Milan that were on trade routes between uh, the Middle East which had recently opened up through the the Crusades right they would sail the goods from the the coast of, of Palestine to Italy through uh, through the Mediterranean and from there it would go on uh, on land throughout the rest of Europe. Okay. And yeah. so as a 
kind of a staging ground or say a gateway almost yeah uh it, it became very very wealthy very very quickly oh sure this didn't necessarily extend to the south of italy because no one was selling their stuff to the south of italy when they can sell it to the north which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, if, if Europe is your target, right? <laughs> pretty much, and, and it very much is at this point. Yeah, absolutely. This is the this is the Italy we're talking about when we talk about Marco Polo, for example. Okay. Where you have people setting up trade routes. Uh, okay. Basically, yep. all the way to China via the Silk Road. Now, <laughs> obviously, the vast majority of these merchants didn't actually travel the entire Silk Road. Mm-hmm. They had goods that were coming to them. And not always necessarily from uh, from Palestine, but also from Constantinople, from uh, from the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. So you'd have goods coming uh, from China through India, through you know Persia into either the well, the whole area could be called the the Levant. That's basically the entire Middle East, as well as modern day Turkey, and as well as uh, Egypt. That okay. whole yeah, kind yeah. of east side of the Mediterranean. Edge, yeah. So so at this point, Northern Italy is kind of like this focal point that all of this commerce is funneling through on both sides Mm -hmm. well and and i mean it's mainly it's mainly goods going coming into into europe Europe, money going out of europe at this point right but yeah absolutely it's all going through northern italy which is a recipe for economic success here uh from for example florence oh yeah and then plus a lot of new cultural ideas to kind of hit right (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah the 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 crossroads of, of cultures at this point in time was really you know, it was becoming very cosmos- cosmopolitan very quickly. There's also a few other things that are going on to make it a really turbulent time. Uh, for example, the papacy was a bit of a mess. If you remember the Knights Templar episode, right. we talked about in that one a lot about how at the very end of the the uh, lifespan of the Knights Templar in the uh, the early 1300s, the Pope was basically a puppet of the yes, the yeah. French king. Mm-hmm. Well, it had actually gotten so bad at, at one point that they took the papacy they moved it out of the papal states so which are which is kind of the land around rome uh they moved it out of there and moved it to to france Mm -hmm. so for quite some time it it wasn't even enough to be exerting political power they had to like keep the pope with them i see i see yeah yeah it was pretty very much a puppet (laughs) yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. so there wasn't even uh really a strong power in the, the the middle of italy anymore uh, which kind of gave these city states a little bit more free reign because they don't have this this strong military power right. kind They're of not keeping an eye on constantly them. around. <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. it it just kind of dispersed power throughout the or or distributed power between all of these city states, making. Them I see. So stronger. so basically, if you're the closer you are to the center of the city state, the generally more secure you're going to be. And if yeah, you're in one of these kind of no man's lands in between, things are going to get a little barbaric could we call it that one (laughs) or is that an over is that overreaching it's not necessarily overreaching but you are talking about you know things like you know highway and things like that that are that are going to be a little bit more common i i don't know i i'd probably want to be closer rather than further from a city state you would think yeah you know there is also the 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 flip side of that which is that the the city states keep going to war with each other there's also that yes and you know if you're right in the middle of that then you're somewhat vulnerable to the potential for uh, military invasion. yeah yeah and we've said on this podcast i think in like six or seven episodes it's too easy to compare to game of thrones <laughs> yeah but uh you kind of want to be someone who's not the most nobody because then you'll just get trampled but you also don't want to have a big target on your back <laughs> yeah you don't necessarily want to be playing the game of thrones <laughs> yeah not necessarily yeah yeah it's it's definitely kind of a 
it, it seems like the best place to be is slightly outside the city. <laughs> exactly. Just slightly, though. You want to be able within reach of the city. Sure. Days travel. Within no arm's problem. reach. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Home base. So this trade that was going up into Europe, there's actually this, um, this phenomenon that developed in the north of France it's called the Champagne Fairs. It's, it's called that because it's in the Champagne region, which is kind of northeast of okay. France. Sure. And they had, a, they had this circuit of basically trade fairs that was going on for six weeks at a time at six different times spaced out through the year. Okay. So you're, you're talking about total of, uh, of 36 weeks of these trades, uh, these trade fairs oh, ongoing. Wow. Hmm? 36 weeks. That's, that's a good chunk of the year. <laughs> it's a good chunk of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's 36 weeks throughout the year where somewhere in one of these small uh, towns in the Champagne region, there's this massive market going on mm-hmm. and People are both bringing goods to it to sell at the market and going there to purchase goods okay. from as far away as Spain, well into the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, wow. Like, okay. it's, it's quite far reaching that people are coming to do commerce at these fairs. And so these merchants in Florence, they're they're buying the stuff off the Silk Road and they're taking it straight to the Champagne Fairs yeah, to, absolutely. to sell there. They're open most of the year. Just yeah. do it. Good prices, a lot of customers. Well, I mean, it's it's essential to commerce in Europe because be, before that, like, right? You if you're not there, then you're nobody. It. Well, be, before that, you have to take it to all the places that you want to sell it. And so, if you want to sell, you know, uh, you you just bought a, a load of spices. Yep. And you want to sell as much of this as possible, but it's a very expensive commodity. Yeah, so you can either tour with it. <laughs> Which sucks because number one, you're only selling a little bit of it at a time. Yeah, and number there's two, a lot of attrition costs and et cetera, et cetera, a lot of traveling. But sure. or you can go to one place and potentially sell all of it in a weekend. Correct. And some of it that you're selling is actually going to be people who who take it back to their local markets and resell it on their own. So it is very much like a convention, like a like you said, a trade fair. Essentially, yeah. yeah. But it, I mean, you you would have you would have commoners from that area going to the trade fair as well. But for the most part, oh, of course, it's going to be mar- merchants that are taking these goods back. I was say it must be cushy to. I mean, it's this kind of circus that's happening where all these foreigners are coming in all the time. But, you know, on the, in the, on the other hand, you don't have to go anywhere and things keep coming to you. Well, I mean, okay, so you, you run a dry goods store in Paris. Sure. You want to stock up. Beans and sundries. Yeah, sure. Beans, <laughs> spices, bolts of cloth. I don't know. Whatever. All the classics. You head over to the Champagne Fair. You buy what you think you're going to need for the next two, three months. Yep. All in one go. Sure. You bring it back. You're done buying. You've done all of your purchasing for several months. Yeah, that's true. It's because great. there's plenty of it. You don't need to go back every three days for whatever they have in stock. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So it, it was it was revolutionary for commerce in in Europe. And again, this just keeps making these city states wealthier and wealthier. And it should be noted that it's not necessarily the government of these places that's becoming wealthy because I mean, yeah, they're getting taxes or whatever. But the people that are really prospering are the people that are merchant class. Taking it. Yeah, it's the merchant class. It's the people that are actually taking a chance on all of this stuff, right? And so you get these these families that start just like locking down trade in certain cities, mm-hmm. and these are known as uh, signori. Uh, basically, it, it's it's like lords, but they're not actually no, uh, noble at all. Okay. It's just that, it's just that they're so wealthy that they might as well be because they're running the place. They've got the political clout <laughs> yeah and a lot of these places uh, a lot of these like lobbyists almost would you say or well the thing is that a lot of these city be. states are actually republics they're not um, uh, okay uh they're not necessary and, and i mean in a, in a really loose sense of the term they're not they're not true republics they still have princes and things like that but there's a degree of civic participation Got for it. the most part right 
and I, I mean, for for some time, the the tr- or the full name of Venice was the Most Serene Republic of Venice. It's not like the Kingdom. Of <laughs> it Venice sounds vaguely or... Japanese when you put it there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But but there is some degree of of civic participation. It's it's somewhat open, considering we're talking about the 14th century. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that is because there are people who are nobles who want say or who are not nobles, sorry, who want a say in the way that their city is being run and are pushing for a form of government where they actually have some sort of clout and they have the money to exactly they've got a they control a big enough chunk of the economy Mm. that the government's going to take notice so in some cases there are little minor coups i guess you could call them sure maybe in other cases they're just so wealthy that they can just buy whatever they want and they don't even need to do that True. Um, I, it's it's hard to overstate just how powerful some of these merchant families became through their wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to go over the history of all of these families. It gets kind of boring. But one of the most famous one would be the Medici's. Yes, um, this is were, the one that I've heard of. <laughs> yes, and they they were they were from Florence, and they actually made their money through banking mainly. Again, referring back to the Templar episode, which will stop doing eventually but the first couple of times through i was gonna say we're getting to the point where there's enough uh episodes of hi 101 that we can start to build a timeline where one topic's kind of bleeding very easily into the next sure right. and, and i mean go right from constantinople to, to templars to yeah <laughs> renaissance yeah this this one will also bleed in at the end so i mean maybe we oh, did lovely it. spoiler alert <laughs> you know after after the fall of the templars they they had such a lock on the banking system in in europe that their collapse was also a bit of a financial collapse for Europe as well. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, a lot of people came in with banking systems right afterwards to try and fill those gaps. But for a while, there were a lot of competing systems for banking. Mm-hmm. Part of what made the Medici's in, in particular so wealthy and Florence uh, you know, a, as a whole so wealthy is that even though they were off in Avignon, the, the papacy was, was seated in Avignon, mm-hmm. um, they uh, contracted out to the Medici Bank to run basically all of the church funds oh it was the yeah it's it <laughs> one big client church. <laughs> yeah that's that's important i i mean that doesn't happen until the late 14th century that's well well into our our timeline but we're going to be doing this a lot we're oh gonna yeah, be jumping yeah around all over the place sure you know cosimo de medici had kind of expanded his father's banking throughout europe the the medici bank was was founded by giovanni de medici but cosimo really took it and like spread it all over the place and it's helpful for the church to have uh, a bank with branches everywhere so yeah. that they can you know collect all those tithes very absolutely <laughs> get more people to give us money it's perfect you know once that happens it's just a runaway train right like once you're managing the church's funds that's that's enormous especially oh, yeah, in the 14th just century watch it uptick <laughs> yeah exactly the medicis were also very revolutionary in banking because they came up with one of the most important fundamentals of accounting which I know you're going to find very exciting. Yay. It's the uh, it's the double entry ledger. Oh, no. <laughs> it's so exciting. Oh, God, the flashbacks. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you did some accounting <laughs> courses at some point. I did. I did. So what, what's what's the what's up with the double entry entry ledger? Uh, I on a base level. And I mean, I haven't seen them since all we want. fairly early on. Like this has been years. But at a base level, you're more or less tallying all of your assets or not assets, all of your revenue, mm-hmm. all of your credits 
in one column and all of your debits or, or liabilities in another. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very easy to tally up who owes you, who you owe, yep. and how much, and whether or not that's a positive or a negative number. <laughs> yep. And if there's any transactions between the two, it's moving the number from one column to the other. Exactly. So it's very easy to not you know mess up the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was revolutionary. People loved it. Yeah, math, right? <laughs> sometimes I sometimes I have this conception, which I know isn't true, but I kind of wish was of like really old timey people seeing something like the double entry ledger and just getting like really excited or or not necessarily that the double entry ledger, but like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, like when you find out that like stirrups on a horse saddle was like the next big thing in warfare and like just imagining people getting around and being like, oh, my God. Like, look at them. It's one of these things where it's very easy for us now to become kind of jaded because everything has been invented and everything that we can still invent is just sort of an iteration on what has already happened. I mean, it's an incredibly patronizing fantasy. It it absolutely is. And that's why you get like, you know, like the the Yankee and King Arthur's court where someone goes back in time somehow and suddenly they've got like the modern conveniences, scare quotes, (laughs) and and it blows everyone's mind and they think of you as a god yeah. or a wizard and and i mean i i recognize how patronizing it is but it's still kind of fun to think about well it's a fun little power trip yeah sure, <laughs> everyone likes thinking about it yeah well i mean hey i i don't know anything about stirrups so i'd still probably yeah that's just it. it right it's more just like yeah these all of these developments that we talk about as being very well it's one of those things too it's like oh man if you could go back in time you could change history and it's like oh, i don't know enough about history that i could go back in time to some random period and actually <laughs> influence things in any meaningful way you get to the ninth century and it's like listen i know about all these crazy stuff couldn't tell you where to start yeah or hey i didn't actually get a smallpox vaccine because that was eradicated before before I was born. <laughs> Whoops. Hey guys, do you know about fire? Oh shoot, that was the only thing I could make from scratch. I remember fire. <laughs> could, could you guys make me one? I'm so cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyways, double entry ledgers, it was a big deal. It, it just helped, I mean, if nothing else, it helped them be more accurate with their banking than anyone else was because they were all over the place. So they, they, des- they developed a, a reputation for accuracy, which again, just only helps their cause, right? Well, sure, and, and among a growing merchant class who are ostensibly banking with them, mm-hmm. like, that seems like it's very important. They've got a lot of money needs managing, and slight mistakes can mean a lot of money. <laughs> Absolutely. Then, between 1346 and 1353, probably the best thing that could possibly happen for the European economy happened. The Black Plague rolled through and wiped out a third of the population. Now, I saw that look. You went... <laughs> But Adam, isn't that a bad thing? Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was a horrible thing. Is this one of those culling the uh, masses? Is it this like a hundred percent is? Imagine. Well, this the Black Plague would specifically cut out mostly. Like it would, it would sort of air towards lower class, right? Nope, nobody was safe. It's the Great Equalizer. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. If there's a if there's a plague year. I mean, if anything, well, that's true. We're not quite into like you know, actually people knowing that hygiene's important yet. So. Exactly. Like, if anything, it disproportionately targets uh, somewhat higher class people in that they will be in urban centers where the disease more easily spreads. That makes sense. Yeah. We talked last time or last episode in uh, the communism episode specifically about mm-hmm. how wages are specifically tied to supply and demand of labor, right? Right. As soon as your labor force is cut by 33%, right. your labor is worth a lot more. All of a sudden, everyone was making a lot more money. I see. Uh, there was also a lot more food to go around. Europe was 
at a point where they were getting a little overpopulated when the Black Plague came around and food was getting a little bit scarce and a little bit expensive. So more food to go around. People are better nourished. Food is cheaper. Right. Wages are higher. Right. Everybody's living pretty good. There's more money coming in as a result of those higher wages, like from, say, unaffected areas, like foreign money. Yes and no, somewhat. I mean, it's because this is still a hub, right? Yeah, it's still a hub. Absolutely. I'm talking all over Europe, though. All of a sudden, everyone's got more spending money, which means that not only are they and 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 cheaper staples, which means that they're spending more money on luxury goods, which just which okay. just helps. All right, I gotcha. Uh, Northern Italy, mm-hmm. because all, that's where all the luxury goods are coming through. So it's not that additional money came into the area. It's that suddenly that money was going a lot farther. <laughs> yeah, it's that everyone had that money to spend on things that that weren't uh i am starving inferior goods (laughs) yeah that also really helped things out now on the flip side though the 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 plague led to a lot of like really serious philosophical questions specifically yes because of the church's really inability to do anything about it not even like necessarily on a a theological but why hasn't god spared us (laughs) right what what have we done to upset him (laughs) but also like on a humanitarian level they actually did a really bad job of like responding to all of these sick and dying people. Oh, sure. You know, who did do a really good job was the signori who had the money to spend on some of this stuff and were looking to take care of their own. I gotcha. Now, so suddenly a lot of political favors being swayed. <laughs> well, we're just kind of like prying certain things out of the hands of the church to some extent in Northern Italy. Okay. It's also, you know, in, in some ways, the Renaissance is about beginning to question certain aspects of religious life that had never been questioned throughout the Middle Ages. Taken for granted. Yeah, Yeah, because people were content and they were happy to accept all of this stuff at face value. Oh, I mean, yeah, sure. There needs to be some sort of shakeup that happens to make people question things generally. And and the plague was a crisis. I mean, just the idea of one in three people just full stop dying Mm -hmm. is, is like unthinkable. Yep. That's, that's insane. Well, and it's a massive game changer. (laughs) Up until now, the idea of where people fit into the universe in a theological sense had been summed up in something called the great chain of being. Right. Which is this idea that there's a hierarchy of all things. Mm -hmm. And at the top is God. At the bottom is the devil. We talked about this in communism, too. (laughs) Yeah. And right in the middle is people. Yep. And you've got like degrees of like angels and demons and so forth in between, right? Absolutely. And and someone well-versed in all of this stuff and would uh, be able to tell you. Exactly. exactly which thing is over which other thing i'm wondering now are there like animals that are above humans no <laughs> i wouldn't think so no there aren't but there are rankings within the animals i would imagine so yeah this idea kind of comes up after a while of of something called humanism and a lot of people point to a guy named petrarch as the first humanist that's kind of arguable but in for, for the sake of our discussion we'll, we'll go with Petrarch. sure yeah he had a major impact on renaissance thought and it was in the direction that you know sort of all of society is going to end up going so we're going to stick with him petrarch lived 1304 to 1374 and the kind of interesting thing about him was that he rediscovered the roman and greek classics okay um specifically he read a lot of cicero cicero was a politician at the same time as julius caesar i was saying i know that name extremely mm-hmm. pro- uh, prolific speechwriter, and uh, you know and uh, wrote a lot of essays and the like right? okay yeah petrarch looked at all of this stuff and kind of felt like there was a lot of information in cicero's writings that were essential to the understanding of human nature that weren't necessarily contained within the bible and up until this point 
the idea was that everything that you need to know about anything is in the Bible. Right. And to suggest otherwise is not not even necessarily heretical, but like almost foolish. Okay. Because it's it's kind of hard to get yourself it's, into that space. It's not just like, a blast. So it's not like a blasphemous idea. It's just that people would laugh and tell you you're wrong. <laughs> you'd almost you'd almost say that he was wasting his time. Yeah. Looking at this stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. To say that it superseded the Bible would probably be would probably would definitely be very heretical. <laughs> I was just say, heretical. Let's, let's go a little crazy. That's mm-hmm. kind of heresy. I, I think you know what I'm gonna plant. <laughs> Both feet on this side. Yeah, exactly. Fence. Let's speak in absolutes. Yes, that is absolutely heresy. <laughs> but the idea of, of humanism is a lot different than what a lot of people will call humanism today, which is kind of a really soft word for agnosticism or even atheism. Yep. The idea of humanism. The secular humanism, the idea that God is in people. <laughs> but yeah, and, and I mean, the humanism of the Renaissance is sort of a, a more nuanced version of that. Which is that God isn't only telling us things through the Bible. God didn't just create the Bible. God created everything around us. And therefore, we can learn things about God and about ourselves from everything around us. Right. Not just the scripture. Which seems pretty reasonable, but at the time was revolutionary. The other part of humanism is that in the Middle Ages, there's very much a sense that human beings by nature are evil and and uh sinful and that there's really nothing that we can do about that except you know through yeah i was raised catholic probably probably (laughs) self-punishment mostly try and stave that off right yeah humanism kind of went you know what like god created us god creates good things maybe humans are actually not so bad maybe we're capable of good things as true back then as it was when lady gaga said it As, as Petrarch once said, <laughs> yes. maybe we were born this way. Yep. Um, I read in the liner notes. <laughs> there was a guy called uh, Della Mirandola who said, you know what? Human beings occupy a very special place on the chain of being, which is that we can actually kind of detach ourselves from it and decide where on the chain we Yeah, fall. so that, that kind of is revolutionary in that it gave humans agency and autonomy from this sort of system. Well, it's a it's a... It was believed that it was a, um, a paradox that human beings could be both mortal and immortal in terms of the body and the soul. Okay. And that everything above humans on the chain are uh, have a soul but no body, and everything below humans on the chain have a body but, but no soul. Gotcha. And Which is why we're dead us, in the middle. <laughs> well, that's what puts us in the middle, right? A kind like of unique the, position. That's the definitive thing that ranks us there. But, that makes a, a kind of sense. Yeah, but well, uh, as much as a <laughs> ranking of all things... Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> secular and divine <laughs> makes sense. Then, the yes, cosmos top ten species. <laughs> Um, basically, <laughs> number seven will blow you away. <laughs> exactly. I was just about to make a BuzzFeed article thing. You beat me to it. Yeah, I, I mean, Miranda is saying like, no, we can we can act as good or as bad as we want, and that's what actually makes us special. It's not the duality of our nature. It's right. uh, the free will that we have, and because we couldn't have free will without it being bestowed on us by God, then mm. we should be using it. Like, we should actually be exercising our free will and make decisions about yeah, ourselves. This, about... this smacks very much of uh, the D&D alignment system that I'm partial to. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Where it's very much like, you know what, there's good things, there's bad things, inherently good and inherently bad. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, humans and all intelligent species are generally uh, true neutral. 
Yeah. And there can be good ones and there can be bad ones, but most of them are just trying to live their life. <laughs> Pretty much. And and so there, there starts being all of this discourse about, you know, the, the inherent goodness of people, the inherent agency of people. And a lot of the intellectual discourse moves away from theological matters to what... What can we do to better ourselves? Well, what's technically called secular matters. And secular just means the world that is not the divine world. Okay, so the observable world. So it becomes very much like uh, sciences and so forth and arts. Except that it's not necessarily uh, devoid of theology. It's that that world was completely ignored beforehand. And there's nothing in this human, uh, this this humanism or this uh, secularism that is... Uh, counter to Christianity in any way. All of these men were devout Christians. They saw this as fitting on top of their worldview yeah, yeah. as Christians. It's mm-hmm. not It's not any sort of disavowal. And that's kind of one thing that I think a lot of people miss when talking about this form of humanism. Okay. It wasn't like some sort of proto-atheist yeah, movement. Right. And you have to be really careful to interpret the things that these people are saying in the light of the, the their own worldview, namely that this is still... Uh, a very Christian worldview that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's merely about looking for God in places other than the church, other than just the Bible. Still go to those places, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's other options. Don't not go to those places. Yeah. Back to Petrarch. He actually saw the prosperity that was kind of happening around him. He saw the uh, intellectual development. He saw, and, and just looking at the, the history of the, Ita- the Italian peninsula with the, the, Roman uh, Republic and then Empire. Right. He saw what he was living through as the beginning of a new golden age. And surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, I, I mean, reasonably so. Yep. I, I, you know, after the whole everybody dying of the plague thing, not for that whole really nonsense. <laughs> well, and and he saw it as as a bit of a trial by fire, and he was looking at the benefits of, of coming see. out of it. Right. Not that he would necessarily call it a good thing per se no but now we're dealing with the aftermath and there can be good things that happen afterwards he he was seeing the the world that came after that benefited from that uh from that experience Mm -hmm. so he recognized that like things are getting really good and like we need to nurture things that are you know beyond just like survival and just like petty warfare and things like that and he really encouraged you know, right it's super easy to take care of our base needs now yeah or much easier than it was 50 years ago needs. yeah exactly so he, he did recognize that right at the same time also you know because of his love of cicero kind of encouraged people to sort of ignite a passion for searching for and studying classic works because i mean the elite do know how to read latin at this point in time right so any of the the roman works I mean, Latin has changed a lot. They can usually puzzle it out. There was also a rediscovery of Greek from the Byzantine scholars. Now, when the Renaissance started, you kind of almost had to go to Constantinople to learn all of these things. Mm-hmm. Except another horrible thing happened that was really good for the the Italians, mm-hmm. which is that in 1453, Constantinople falls, which leads to a mass exodus of all these Greek scholars. from the city yeah yeah because now the ottomans have it and they don't want any part of that and it's a short hop across the mediterranean (laughs) well there are trade routes set up already (laughs) yep they're already there it is like it's super easy to get there easily the best way to get it's like catching a bus (laughs) because if you were to try and do it by land you'd be going north i am tying together all my episodes today i was gonna say if you're gonna head north you were gonna be getting into uh what's now romania which (laughs) is the vladimir episode good call yeah you want on that boat 
So all of a sudden, all of these people are putting this huge premium on studying classical works. You've got a bunch of Greek speakers showing up, carrying with them whatever documents they can carry. Some say I showed up here one day and there were several job offers. <laughs> which are which are going to be containing Plato, which are going to be containing, you know, like all of these, all of these Greek masters. Right, it's going right. to have Homer uh, included in them. And they're going to be like, yeah, I'll teach you how to read it. Can you please help me find a home? <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm, I'm so hungry. Uh, I just got off this boat. <laughs> help my family. And yes, we can read. My, my, every, my Everything I had back home is gone. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'll teach you how to read the Odyssey. So this, this study of the classics comes up. And I mean, all of those classical works have absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. A lot of them are philosophical works. Mm -hmm. And... They're proponents of a lot of the things that uh, the Petrarch has already been talking about that he got from Cicero, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of human agency within uh, a world that is both secular and divine, which is really in line with uh, with some of the Greek philosophers. Okay, so so Petrarch had these ideas that he got previously from Cicero. Yeah. And because of this mass exodus at Constantinople, it's basically making those ideas spread a lot faster to a much wider audience. Correct. I mean, Petrarch very famously says to a bunch of people, we should be learning from the classics. But, and then? <laughs> in a, in a pre-printing press world. Right. And then a whole bunch of people show up and say, hey, I've got some classics. Hey, we can teach you that degree. stuff. <laughs> they go perfect. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, this also leads to, in, in 1453, in the exact same year that this exodus begins. Right. Gutenberg invents the printing press. Oh, awesome. Yeah, good timing. You know, the first the first movable type printing press is is created. And, you know, the first thing he does is print the Bible, right. obviously. Sure, yep, number But one. as soon as the patent moves and as soon as he starts selling print and press, uh, printing presses all over the world, yep. or all over Europe, I should say, people start printing Homer. They start printing Cicero. They start printing... Plato, they start printing uh, Aristotle, like all of these classic works. Become wildly accessible. You don't even have to know to, one of these masters. Compared to compared to these handwritten books that people were dealing with before the 1450s, these are eminently affordable. I mean, mm -hmm. they're still prohibitively expensive for anyone who isn't of like the merchant class or higher. Sure. But those aren't the people that are pursuing these, yeah, these ideas. Of course. So if you're now in a merchant class, you know housing and feeding your family and everything is almost beneath you it's it's simple yeah and suddenly not only do not only have to know one of these masters anymore you can go pick up three books yeah yeah and and and, I, and better yourself well and they started printing them in sizes that were so small that people would carry them around with themselves they were as much a status symbol as they were oh sure we've all seen the paintings yeah it's it's the guys and toga's of, uh, wandering around with books yeah it's the moleskin of the, the 1300s <laughs> yeah exactly they're beeping away on their ipad as they wait for the bus yeah exactly this leads to things like scientific philosophy or at least the very roots of scientific philosophy where people are doing things like hey instead of talking about these in you know scholastic monasteries and mm -hmm. talking about what probably is the case because of what scripture tells us you can do it in the marketplace <laughs> Also, hey, let's go take a look at it. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Because, we can observe this. <laughs> because the world around us is teaching us about God. Right. Not just the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so you get things like... And we have leisure time. Well, you we get, have ex We have expendable income. You get, for example, Leonardo da Vinci actually doing autopsies and right. figuring out human anatomy instead of going like, well, whatever is inside me is, you know, God's business. Yeah, and dark meat of some that. kind. <laughs> yeah. This leads to the idea of the Renaissance man, which again is an anachronistic term but really captures the philosophy of what people would aspire to be in northern italy at this point in time which is 
you know, namely very well educated in a number of fairly broad subjects that we would today call the humanities. So art, history, philosophy, rhetoric, things like that became worthwhile pursuits rather than kind of a waste of your time. Sure. Because um, you have that time now. Now it became an ideal to spend that leisure time on bettering yourself in these ways. Right. And I mean, Da Vinci is the easiest example of, uh, you know, go-to example of a Renaissance man in terms of the the sheer number of things that he worked on. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't think we have to get it into an entire list, but like the number of like imaginary inventions that he came up with. Yeah. Um, like inventor and an artist and philosopher and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> it keeps going and going and going. I mean, I, there, there are easily three works that I can think of off the top of my head that I would imagine almost every single person in Western society has seen uh, Vitruvian man, yep. Mona Lisa mm-hmm. last supper. Yep. To say nothing of that crazy whirly gig helicopter. Well, that's that's probably number four, yeah. <laughs> Don't ever forget. And a lot of his work, too, which is going to be common of a lot of artistic work that we're going to talk about, is just like chock full of symbolism, which was basically a requirement. It wasn't just about the realism, right? But it's also, yeah, I know, you're making this face and you think I'm going to talk about Dan Brown, don't you? I'm not talking about Dan Brown today. Uh, well, I didn't say it, you did. <laughs> Miller. I have no poker face. I'm sorry. Tell me that's what you weren't. Just just tell me you were not. That's exactly what I was thinking, but I never said it. Listen, I'm not going to come here and tell you that there's some sort of coded meaning in the Mona Lisa that's going to lead us to uh, the descendants of Jesus, because that's not true. Um, But we can talk about things like, for example, the Vitruvian Man, Mm -hmm. who in, you know, in one way is a study on, you know, human anatomy. It's a a simple descriptive sketch Uh, in another way. It's actually a, um, a comment on man's uh, mutable ability in the world, his ability to fill multiple roles, the, the sacred and the profane, mm-hmm. um, specifically through that circle and the square. There's an old math problem, which is how do you get a square with the same uh, area as a circle? How do you figure that out? It's an impossible problem because yep. of the nature of pi. I was going to say I don't have. <laughs> However, if you look at the if you look at the Vitruvian man, mm-hmm. there are two things that are being observed there. Number one, it was believed that if you drew a circle with the center at the navel of the body, right, a man fits perfectly inside it, which would be, would be the one with the legs oh, stretched, stretched and the yep. arms. You know, so you, you can see that there's a circle centered directly on that, mm-hmm. and it's described all the way around the person, right? Right. Also they noted that the height of a person is almost exactly the same as the arm span of a person describing the square. Mm -hmm. So really what he's saying with that sketch is also that man is the answer to that uh, age old riddle, (laughs) that that math problem, but in a symbolic way, which kind of straddles philosophic and theologic. Yeah. Yeah. And also is uh, one of those ancient riddles that, you know, the Greeks and whatnot hated irrational numbers <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so and i mean it ties this neat little theological bow around it it's an incredible drawing like the more i read about it the more interesting it becomes because there's so many layers to it and that's like a sketch that the guy dashed off yep it's it's you find that in his notebook he was yeah. doodling that while writing something else writing something backwards in mirror image yeah exactly in so code in cipher so that people can read it yeah most of his stuff he wrote mirror image which is really interesting but mm-hmm. Anyways, I think that's probably a good place to take a break now that we've gone through a lot of the both uh, political and sort of philosophical underpinnings of what we're going to be talking about. Right. 
And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the patronage system, actually. So that should be a good time. Yay. Be right back. Great. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Kevin Miller. Hey. And we've been talking about some pretty heavy philosophical stuff. Some weird stuff that feels like it shouldn't need to be talked about, but... Well, That's yeah, kind of what I mean, the Renaissance is about. These are just... what seven hundred year old yeah. <laughs> ideas. So, so I mean, it, it's interesting to talk about, but in some ways, it feels like we are already there. It's well, it's it's one of those things that you you don't really think of a time before people thought this way, thought of themselves as having agency on the world around them. Yeah, and not just being like it's it's hard to think of the someone... great celestial scale. Yeah, it's it's hard to think of someone who doesn't think that way. That's true. Yeah. That's that's I think the the hardest part about all of it is it's not it's not about people discovering it. It feels obvious. It's about people not realizing it un, until then. Right, right. And it makes some ancient people at least in at least in Europe a little bit harder to understand, I think. Just not being able to put yourself in that headspace. Well, and it might have to do with and we talked about this early on in this episode is that because these people are in some ways kind of coming out underneath the shadow of the church. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've got the opportunity to do that for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And I mean, the the church still has, uh, you know, I mean, it's still obviously a presence in their lives and this is all sort of based in that sort of, but it's not as smothering if I can use a sort of negative term. Well, yeah. And and that's the, the, yeah. my, My first instinct was to go, you know, it, this is a good place to remind people that the church in the Middle Ages isn't as oppressive necessarily as it's maybe made out to be a lot of times these days. In a lot of cases, the church is the only place uh, you can go to as a social safety net. Right. The church is the main reservoir of education. Mm-hmm. Like you're probably not going to get an education outside of the church unless you are extremely wealthy and can afford a full-time private tutor, a tutor yeah, for example. Yeah. But now because of changes that have happened recently in the Renaissance, we're having more people who are capable of that. Yeah, all of a sudden there are other avenues of gaining some of this advantage in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the the church, you know, curated all these documents from the the Roman Empire, right? And they they were the ones that preserved all of this stuff when the entire continent was on fire being sacked by gods. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they've held on to them for a while now. And all of a sudden we have people who are interested in reading them again. And it's it's making uh, it's making some waves for sure. Oh, absolutely. I want to talk about some of the more direct impacts that the signori were having on their communities, namely through sponsorship of the arts. Yay! Because before this, art was mainly again in the in the realm of the church. You would see, for example, illuminations in manuscripts. You would see. Right. Uh, stained glass you would see painting like there was plenty of painting but most of it was religious in nature outside of a very small number that would be commissioned for private individuals who are extremely wealthy mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't necessarily a, a public thing unless it was religious right. uh, same thing with sculpture it was almost always on religious buildings you know it was it was sculptures either of saints or far more often depictions of angels or demons well and it was a a vestige of the this is the church that can afford to commission these sort of things or 
be a patron of these sort of things. But also, they're trying to communicate ideas of religion to an audience that largely can't read or write. Absolutely. And so imagery is very important to spreading that message. So we have like visual representations in stained glass of signs of the cross, for example. Right. And so it becomes very easy to understand that story. Yeah, exactly. It, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, there, there were a lot of problems a few hundred years before this in terms of disagreements between the the east and west church specifically over this point is it okay to have art in right so this was the religious idolatry (laughs) yeah basically Mm -hmm. really the art the argument on the part of the the western church is we have congregations who do not speak the language that we are reading out of a book that they cannot read themselves right we need to find some way of communicating this message to them the best way to do that is through sculpture and through visual representations and even through music just in terms of like giving them cues for where things are happening right uh throughout the throughout the mass it's it's a way of keeping people engaged and keeping people at least to some extent understanding what's happening around them, what the yeah most and, and it are. gives them the ability to kind of work through that sort of stuff on their own rather than having a, a holy figure tell them the stories and have that being the only way that they can learn anything yeah and i mean that that is still the, the main way of, of course but it. it gives them the opportunity to be like oh yeah so here are these pictures on the church wall yeah i know what these mean because of the one time and now i can kind of experience them for myself it, it it's not a, i can't read my bible yeah it is a compromise to allow individual reflection on these you know most important parts as as the you know the builders of that church or the decorators of that church i suppose right. uh, saw fit the other kind of key to all of this is that really before the renaissance they didn't see the artist themselves as being really that important in the process. Nope. <laughs> the artist was essentially a craftsman. A conduit. <laughs> yeah. And and any any inspiration or any any skill that came out of that was just them acting, as you said, as a conduit for uh, inspiration. Divine from inspiration. God. Yeah. The person that was making it, nah, they, they didn't really matter. And I mean, this is fairly common throughout all of Europe at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the whole art scene, like in the Gothic era, is just kind of grim Bleak. for the artists <laughs> themselves. And also the art, you know, wasn't always the best. Like there were a lot of things that they had not really figured out how to do well, because in a lot of cases, the artists that are working aren't necessarily the most talented individuals. They are the people who manage to get a job as artists, and that's what they do with their life. And you know, yeah. I, I don't I don't want to get too down on them <clears throat> skill wise. Well, I mean, it was because of certain advances that got made during the Renaissance. And I'm sure we'll get into this. Everything kind of beforehand was sort of more symbolic than representative. Sure. So yeah, that's also very true. But you know, I'm I'm also I'm also looking to say that like that's it's it's closer to uh, this is a bad way of saying it, but it's it's almost closer to getting into masonry now where yes it is a skilled trade Mm -hmm. but there are probably people who have some level of artistic ability that are not doing that because it's a trade rather than an art or it's considered a trade rather than an art and that makes sense yeah yeah so so i mean even before like the gothic period or and during it as well and i've took this during earlier years of art history it was more sort of focused on um building these lavish uh churches and cathedrals and stuff like that well the church was easily the main patron of the arts at this absolutely yeah and they very specifically did not put any emphasis on the artists now all of a sudden you've got wealthy you know northern uh, italy and there are all these people that are like i don't know what to do with all this money 
Like, what am I going to do with it all? Yep. And you, you know what this wall needs? <laughs> a fresco. <laughs> Frescoes everywhere. All Frescoes to death. Um, no, they, they decided they wanted to commission some art themselves. If the church can do it, why can't they? They have sure. the funds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I need my house to look prettier. Mm-hmm. They have they they have to show people that they are very well off. And absolutely, what they better do. way than to commission a very good painter? To Most of their power comes from there. public perception. Yeah, absolutely, and well, especially because they don't have any perceived power through lineage. Yeah, they have none through lineage. They've got plenty through wealth. Everything and is and why not show? Hey, I've got this wealth. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this boom in people basically privately commissioning all of these works which leads to a boom in the number of people who are working as artists Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden there are enough people paying not just the church that more people can work as artists that also means that people with a wider array of talents are discovered and the best ones are picked off by the wealthiest people and are given the funds to actually develop those skills and talents right rather than doing some artistic work but also doing some very sort of pedestrian work on the side just to pay the bills sure which is kind of the 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 norm before this Mm -hmm. because of this sort of cycle of people trying to find the best artists the best artists it raises the social standing of the artist uh you know within italy all of a sudden you can become a great person through your art. Absolutely. And there's a handful that we know by name, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the, yeah. When, when you think old painter guys, it's probably from this 150 year period. Most likely. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a very good chance. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of what they were doing was about their reputation. Some of it was about goodwill for the community when they would commission something for, you know, for example, a town square, uh, a statue right. of some sort, but mm-hmm. that is still, you know, in their own interests. And then you can get into arguments about, you know, uh, you're helping both, and, you're helping both. And you know, who's going to accuse you of doing one or the other. <laughs> yeah. But they were also kind of subversive. A lot of the artwork that they were putting out Oh yes. in terms of, you know, they, they would do things like, go, I want this fresco, I want it to depict this scene from the Bible, Mm -hmm. but I want me and my family to be this guy, (laughs) this guy, this guy. Show that I was there. (laughs) Me and my friend Jesus. They have to show that they're very pious by commissioning this uh, Yeah, so you're like, hey, this guy looks enough like me that you could expect that maybe my great-grandfather was witness of these events. (laughs) (laughs) And very wealthy because they can afford to pay somebody to paint a very good fresco on their wall. Yep. But they were also very vain. And mm-hmm. so if you're going to pay all that money, why not a portrait and a religious symbol? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a two-in-one deal. It's, I it's, mean, you, you might as well. It's, you get two for one. And I mean, this attitude towards artists is also a bit of a manifestation of humanism in that you're looking at the person themselves and their own agency to create mm-hmm. as something worth being celebrated. That's a very secular idea. Yes. It's an extremely secular idea, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't have existed without that intellectual climate so well, yeah and now uh hearkening back to what you were saying earlier you're focusing a lot more on the individual now and the works that they're creating rather than giving all credit to a divine influence mm-hmm. so you have kind of this perfect storm for art in that humanism is happening mm-hmm. and also private wealth is happening and people can afford to get it and, and artists are willing to give it <laughs> yeah because in reality, an idea like humanism kind of needs practical legs to stand on. Oh, of course. Or else it's not really going to go anywhere. And you need the money for those legs to stand on. Uh-huh. Likewise, for somebody other than the church to have that amount of money is really, really dangerous if they don't have some sort of somewhat philanthropic outlet for it. Because 
the amount of this uh, this artwork that was being made public right. was seen as not necessarily a political power move by these families, mm-hmm. but rather uh, an attempt, like, almost a protection, cultural protection by these families of them looking out for the entire city state. Yep. So like, yes, the Medici's essentially ruled Florence, but it was in a very like familial way. They were taking care of all of Florence with their wealth. Yeah. And and it was a very like... It's, it's almost a mafia. <laughs> it's got some similarities, that's yeah. for sure. But there are regions in Sicily where people say how much they miss the mafia. So, I mean... Well, they take care of their people. They take care of their people. And their people just happen to be the entire city. And if you're living in that city, who are you? Well, you're not going to complain. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Definitely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, really wealthy families, and even the slightly less wealthy but still exorbitantly wealthy compared to the people around them, Signori would just sponsor artists and see what would happen. They would almost like invest in artists before they necessarily knew how good they were. Well, because you might showed... discover the next big thing, and you yeah, can afford to do it. Exactly, as long as they showed promise, it was worth making that investment basically as a prospect. So it really allowed a lot of people who probably wouldn't have had a chance otherwise to really stretch their legs artistically and in you know some rare but very notable situations stretch their legs in other areas for example da vinci right who i, I mean if that was just some dude that was like coming up with helicopters on his spare time yeah like, probably very hungry <laughs> yeah it's he would have been considered insane probably probably but he was he, he again he was being sponsored in florence yeah it's this sort of thing where you can do these works and i'm sure that he was invested in his art just as much as he was in his uh science and his inventing and so forth mm-hmm. but it's the sort of thing where because he can do this these great paintings and get paid probably very well for them mm-hmm. he can then afford to spend time doing other stuff and you know cranking out a painting when he needs to exactly exactly it's very good for art it's super good for art yes it's a it's a really good climate. I mean, it's interesting actually. We we talk about we keep saying Renaissance, Renaissance, Renaissance. Renaissance mm-hmm. means rebirth. Yes. It's a it's a French word. Oh, an, sorry, an, I, I thought we would have said that up front. <laughs> I you know it's one of those things that I sort of feel like most people know, but uh, yeah, we we had to say it at some point, uh, and we got rolling on that you know late medieval stuff so quickly that hey yeah, why not true true um it's it's a it's a french word and it's from the 19th century i mean it's you know nobody nobody was no one said it, it the then. Renaissance during the renaissance <laughs> yep. but the way that they were looking at this golden age that they were going through was a return to sort of the glory of the height of the roman empire you know before everything started getting all corrupt and nasty which makes sense because they've all been kind of i don't want to use the word indoctrinated <laughs> but they've all been studying these classics for a while <laughs> well and but the interesting thing too there is that up until this point in a lot of ways rome was seen as something to forget about and move past mm-hmm. because it happened and then the hordes came yep. rome fell everything got terrible it clearly it didn't time. work so it must not have been that big a deal <laughs> and they're just barely clawing their way out of it exactly this is the first time where they feel like they've gotten back to a point where it's like well maybe you're almost maybe so this bad. is a good thing now <laughs> yeah and they saw some poetry in the fact that it was happening in italy mm-hmm. so yeah this this idea that they're returning to the classics this idea that they can put focus on aesthetics they can put focus on people uh they can compare themselves to uh, the Roman Empire, which is basically mythical at this point in time, right. is all of a sudden possible with all of this wealth that they haven't had since the Roman Empire, with all of this art that they haven't had since the Roman Empire. They feel like they've barely caught up. Okay, yeah. 
because everyone's reading, all of a sudden there is a resurgence or, or it's not even a resurgence, but a, a birth of vernacular Italian literature, which is basically exactly what's going to happen to England or to English mm-hmm. in like a hundred years with Shakespeare. Okay. It happens in Italian first, which is that before this, everyone's, you know, writing poetry in Latin. Right. Everything that's important in any way is being written in Latin. All of a sudden you have this explosion of uh, authors who are writing in actual Italian. And that helps to open up the artistic scene to the wider population. Right. All of a sudden people can actually understand the things that are being written. Of course, not just the, the elite that know Latin. It also allows people to disseminate these works further because we've got the printing press now and it's a lot cheaper to sell books at all mm-hmm. uh, you don't need a monk to copy them out by hand yep for uh, 10 years <laughs> exactly man it's just a tedious thought oh my god it's hard to imagine <laughs> and this is also going to lead to kind of a, a golden age of authors that you know we're, we're even fi- uh, familiar with now for example dante right uh, the divine comedy was written in 1320 okay and it was written in italian you also have uh, Machiavelli, which is right at the end of the time period that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's actually slightly after. It's 1513 that it was published. Okay. The Prince was a... I, it, it's one of the more misunderstood works, I think, because um, <laughs> number one, it's essentially a parody. And number two, even the things that it's saying as a parody often get so badly misquoted mm-hmm. that I don't think people have a good grasp of it. I'm just hearkening back to uh, some lines from Portal 2. <laughs> Where it's very misunderstood by one of the characters. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. That's yeah. in keeping with everyone. Yep. And and yeah, Machia- Machiavelli is interesting because, you know, he's talking about people that are alive in his own time. And he's mm-hmm. talking about the dynamics, the political dynamics of his own time. That he's observing um, or parodying. Which are revolutionary in a lot of ways. I mean, the idea of keeping an, a standing ambassador is invented basically here. Right. Before you would send envoys to pl- to places that you want to contact diplomatically. Right. They start keeping embassies. You wouldn't necessarily have one that stays there. Yeah, they started keeping embassies in these other little city-states because it just made sense to... Yeah. Because Rather than sending you back and forth, you stay there and be our representative. <laughs> yeah, and, and because power is becoming more and more distributed because of these signori, these very wealthy individuals, mm-hmm. it made sense to delegate some of this power because you could basically just go, well, like, okay, you can make decisions on this stuff. You don't have to check with us. Yeah, on every single thing. You're good to just... With weeks in between. Yeah, exactly. So he's commenting on all of this stuff in, in, the, in the prints and, you know, really about three lines get pulled out and taken out of context and, and everyone think that thinks that that's what Machiavelli honestly don't about. know that i could quote anything from the prince right now well the most famous one is the one about it's better to be feared than loved oh yeah that's not actually what the whole passage says no i wouldn't think so the the, the whole passage basically says you know of the two things obviously anyone would prefer to have both yeah it, it goes out right, right i want people front, to so. be afraid of how much they love me you, you should michael scott michael scott uh <laughs> You know, and, and that's the thing that everyone says when they hear the better to be feared than love thing was like, well, why don't I, you know, why not both? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, try to do both. He's like, it's it's good. It's good policy to do both. You should get your people to love you and fear you. Yeah, absolutely. But he says, if you can only have one, choose fear. Yeah. And he then goes on to explain why. But again, that's a one sentence poll. Yeah, from, it's, a, it's a sentence fragment that yeah. people like. <laughs> Anyways, there was a guy named uh, Giacomo Delantini who created the sonnet 
in the 13th century. Oh boy. He created the, the form of the sonnet. Maybe and you've heard of it. It was refined by Petrarch, the guy that we've been talking about in, in uh, the context oh, of humanism. Okay. That's interesting. He wrote sonnets in Italian. There are a number of them that are actually fairly famous. Hmm. Um, and the sonnet as refined by Petrarch, uh, it's the Petrarchian sonnet. I was going to say, that's where what, the name comes from. Now I get it. Ah, yeah, yeah. Making it's, connections. It's essentially what Shakespeare is going to end up writing. Yep. It's exactly the form that, that he's going to use a hundred years later. Again, maybe you heard of it. <laughs> maybe you heard of it. So yeah, a lot of literature. That's, that's one thing people don't talk about a lot in terms of the Renaissance, but the literature is absolutely rich at this point in time. Yeah, I, I honestly hadn't considered it, but of course it is. <laughs> and again, it's this sort of doing it in the common vernacular, like spreading it out to everyone, not restricting it to a, an elite few or yeah, restricting the elite it to, educated few yep. yeah or, or restricting it to the uh to the divine sphere right like so the, so then i imagine that literacy is kind of skyrocketing now as well in in a comparative sense yes. <laughs> fair enough okay but but yeah o- overall it is it is growing mm-hmm. and i mean there are of course other avenues through which people can be experiencing this literature there are a lot of public readings there are plays right. uh, books all over the place by now yeah Mm-hmm. But that's because people can write plays and then have them easily disseminated and, and acted throughout Italy for yeah. audiences to enjoy. Absolutely. Decentralization. Yeah. I, I mean, really overall demand for non-religious subject matter goes up at this point. And it's not, you know, again, it's not necessarily a reaction against the church. It's no. not a rejection of the church. They just want more. <laughs> it's, that, it's that there was nothing else before. Yeah. Anything this is, is new. <laughs> anything, anything that's not done by the church is going to be non-religious subject. Oh well, yeah, imagine seeing something or hearing something for the first time. That's a comedy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> this is entertaining. Here. More, please. Uh, sorry, this isn't just a morality play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is entertaining, and, and I laughed. <laughs> that man fell down. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, as we said before though this is this system is essential for people like da vinci you know michelangelo is another really uh, good example of someone who benefited greatly mm-hmm. from all of this patronage people just giving money to artists and seeing what happened and you need such a rich society for that to happen in and it was kind of just perfect timing yep let's talk a bit about music okay <laughs> You're going to see a lot of me just nodding and with my eyes glassed over. I don't know a whole lot about music. <laughs> That's okay. The first thing I'm going to mention is that a lot of instruments that we know either were invented in this period or had their like direct precursors invented in this period. Okay. Uh, most famously, the violin. Yeah, I've heard of that one. But also things like uh, the tambourine was invented, the recorder was invented. There's a lot of things that are basically one step away from becoming the flute or one step away from becoming clarinet for example okay. there are there are trumpets but like a slightly less refined version of trumpets all of this is being uh, created in this era so is this just sort of I, I mean i'm not sure what existed prior to this as far as like i don't there's a lot about music history i don't know obviously so you're gonna have and before this and this is actually what we're going to talk about a little bit more before this you have two types of music you have church music and you have secular music sure secular music is raunchy and body yeah and it's 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 for the masses and and you don't you don't bring it up in any sort of uh high society because that is what people are you know that's that's what 
troubadours are playing in brothels basically sure my my, my, pub music. my specific question i guess is like so before this like what were music what were songs being played on like we just had more basic instruments that were yeah. refined now that people had so the time see, and money to do the refining yeah so you'd see things like lutes lutes uh, and fives. like tin whistles and that yeah sort of the, the fife is similar to a tin whistle yeah, yeah. uh you know basic drums the harp little, like chimes and stuff like that <laughs> yeah it was it was Bells. not it was not re- well refined mm-hmm. you're absolutely right and this is a point in time where people are being paid money to go hey let's see if i can create a new instrument i see so before this there was like five or six like well-known instruments and then and a lot of them are refinements of instruments that were created by the greeks fair i mean the lute is a greek instrument i have no idea man no, no, that's 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 fine that's what i'm telling yeah. you about it. <laughs> Um, I honestly wouldn't have pictured that, but yeah, that makes no, sense. it's been around forever. Harps have been around forever. Yeah, well, the harp seemed. Yeah, I could have guessed that that was Greek, just because I know that Pythagoras had a lot to do with um, hmm. finding chords as like an exercise in geometry. Yep. So, but yeah, church music has been going through a tough time because, as we talked about earlier, art in the church was really like a concession. They weren't like happy about it in a lot of ways, and music is one of the things that they could help keep people on track with, but. When music starts out, they want, like, number one, no instruments. Instruments are frivolous, right? Okay. And, again, probably the kind of thing that you would find in, you know, a pub or worse. Is acapella an Italian word? Uh, It actually absolutely is. (laughs) I was going to say, it sounds like it could be. So, yeah, uh, uh, music in in churches was entirely vocal. Mm -hmm. And then it was supposed to be monophonic. Like, it was supposed to be one voice. It was supposed to be one note. Um, tell you what, let's do it this way. Oh, examples. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Oh no what? <laughs> Surprises. You don't, you don't want to hear my melodica? No, absolutely I do. <laughs> so. Multimedia episode. Sure, why not? I'll play you some, I'll play you some fake, uh, medieval music. Oh boy. What you start out with is like one dude just singing a line, right? So, uh, we're going to pick a really simple line and we're going to go from there, okay? Okay. So he's just going to go, he's just going to be singing this, but I'm not going to sing for you. That's that's good. That's a recipe That'd be disaster. weird. Yep. That would be weird, wouldn't it? That'd be so weird. So you're just going to have one dude and he's singing like... And that's it, but it's kind of like, it's a little anemic. Yeah. And so... It feels very do, solo, very empty. But they're trying to like put as much emphasis on what he's singing... As, as anything else. So as the part of the music as the art. Yeah. It's just a delivery method. Yeah. And so they want to beef it up, but then they're just going to have a bunch of guys singing the exact same thing. And really all you get out of that is volume. Right. The church had big problems with intervals, uh, with more than one note played at the same time, because there's a lot of symbolism that goes into music. People mm-hmm. get really tied up in symbolism in music, which sure. makes perfect sense psychologically. But yeah. there's certain intervals that don't sound good. Yeah, discordant, is that yes. the phrase? Yep. There's there's one that's so bad that I actually wasn't taught about it in music theory. Oh, no. And it was called uh, the devil's interval. I would interval. say the devil's something, right? Yeah, it was called the devil's interval. <laughs> so they told... So there's the octave, which is, which is like... Yeah. Which is one octave up. It's the same note. It's listed as the same note. Right. And when you play them together... Pleasant. It sounds like you've just doubled it up just higher, right? Yep. Then there's a fifth, which is halfway in between an octave. So, yep. And those sound pretty good. Mm-hmm. Which is great. There's also a perfect, that's called a perfect fifth, just because right. it sounds so great. 
Yeah, this is the, the halfway perfect. point, right? Yeah. Then there's yeah. the perfect fourth, which is this. Sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. But in between the perfect fourth and the perfect fifth is yeah. this. Are you ready? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that's the devil's interval. Yeah, it sounds so like annoying. It. it is so annoying. Mm -hmm. um, that's what they use for ambulance. Sounds. Oh, because, because it, like, oh, it sets God. you on edge. Ah, what is that, right? Like, yep. it just, it, it's so awful. Yeah, you can't ignore it. The church heard that and went, that's, de that's demonic. <laughs> we will have no part in this. So was the, was the uh, emphasis away from trying to harmonize, trying to avoid anything that could accidentally become that? Essentially, because if that interval is demonic, yep. where's Everything the line? Everything else becomes closer to that. Yeah, where's the line, basically. Right, yep. But after a while, they decide that they can, they can play this stuff at the octave just to fill it out a little bit. And right. Because people have higher and lower voices. They kind of yeah, and that gives you volume, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, it just gives it a little That bit sounds of like an organ. <laughs> and then they decided that the fifth is pretty good, right? Yeah. It's not bad. Sure. So what we can do is we can... Do the fall and then the fifth? Well, we can add the fifth in, maybe fill it out a little bit more. But, like, this is centuries of progress. Right. But there's something really interesting when you double it at the fifth. Which is that it actually kind of sounds like an old-timey fanfare. Okay. Like, you know how it just, like, it sounds like something from Trumpets on a Period piece, right? I suppose. <laughs> it's it's a weird sound. And it, yeah. it just doesn't quite work. Hmm. What they would do is add in, like, drones in behind. So the drone would yes. give... Yes, so uh, you get the idea of, like, a Gregorian chant where someone's just kind of... Basically, because <laughs> that would that would give support to it right. without sounding weird. And well, still yeah, emphasizing it, the it has sort of this over-arcing or under-arcing. So, just a root... Or even with a fifth. Mm -hmm. Sure. But like, that's kind of boring and they kind of want to change it up. So you can try adding or moving a the second root tone. To, to other places in the melody. Mm -hmm. But like, certain ones don't work and they realize that there's something called a cadence, which helps. It's called resolving uh, a chord, mm -hmm. which is that if you play, if you have this chord, mm -hmm. If you put, instead of the root, the C, if you put the one before it, the B, it sounds really, like, tense. Yeah. Okay. So if you go from the, the cadence, the one before the root, mm -hmm. to the root, it sounds like you've, like, finished whatever you're doing. I see. So they start looking at that and going, like, well, maybe that's okay. And basically what they're doing is they're figuring out different scales that they're okay with or not okay with. Right. That's where you get very churchy sounding stuff as a result. But you get really churchy sounding stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. And like, it sounds like there's a couple stops in there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But this whole time, what they're not doing is adding in a second melody because they're trying to support that right. main one. Because they once, want to get the message across. That's the point. <laughs> well, and they're worried about all these intervals interacting. Right. Then musicians especially in avignon which was a, a cultural center mm -hmm. really started pushing for pol uh, polyphony which is several voices right poly and phony many and voices right and all of a sudden you get something called counterpoint polyphony 
which is basically you take that original melody right. and write one more against it, and all of a sudden... Oh, I see. It's... And so the idea is that you're kind of interrupting one or sort of lacing two melodies together. Well, the one that we want to emphasize is is the main one that we've been doing. But all of a sudden, I just wrote a completely different one, <laughs> which doesn't inform it at all. Yeah. Okay. Which is its own thing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, Don't I like can't it. have that now. But the cultural forces behind all of these these people that are you know working on patronages. Mm-hmm. They're doing it anyways. And what that what that creates is number one, a secular music scene which is both respectable and sophisticated. So it's got its roots in the same thing, so it kind of has that respectable base. Is that the idea? Well, because you have people who are working for the Medici's playing this music. Yeah, exactly. And not just buddy down at the pub. Yeah, it's not jazz. <laughs> not yet. Not quite. <laughs> But at the same time, you also have a lot of crossover between the artists that are working on that kind of music and church music. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to slip little bits in there. Yeah. And at a certain point, they kind of have to give in to those pressures. They don't necessarily have to. And I mean, to this day, the official stance of the Catholic Church is that they prefer Gregorian chant. Yeah. You know, they've made a lot of provisions for being fine with any music that's sung in the right spirit, basically. But that's that's still on the books yeah sure you don't get a lot of christian rock in churches <laughs> for example that depends on the church but well, anyways. that's true um this this music starts getting more elaborate more complex and they start writing masses in this form mm-hmm. and i mean like 200 years from where we're talking about this is how you get mozart right like this is how you get bach this is how you get all of these really well-known baroque uh, composers is mm-hmm. they're working exclusively in polyphony yeah makes sense counterpoint is the the fundamental you know building block of baroque music you'll have to take my word on that and that's okay but you don't get something like a bach prelude without these guys trying to go like no i can't have all the notes going up and down at the same time one octave apart so just kind of taking what i've now learned Mm-hmm. And other words I've heard of and a basic understanding of Latin is this sort of leading into what symphony becomes. <laughs> a long way down the road. I say a long, long way. So, I, I mean, at this point, the church isn't even really okay with instruments mm-hmm. inside the church, like as part of the mass. But stuff from religious music is now being brought into secular music as well as the other way around because they're trying to pull more interesting and more right a uh, lot of gray area <laughs> respectable yeah it, well yeah. it stops being two separate worlds mm-hmm. and as much as the church can try and prevent bleed on their side it's going to bleed the other way and there's nothing they can really do about it and you start seeing things that are the precursors to opera at this point in time you start seeing uh, ensemble music like you were talking about with uh, with symphony mm-hmm. where instruments are both well made enough to properly work with one another um, okay yeah, you know, yeah. To keep a, as far as tuning and yeah. so forth yeah and you have uh, composers that are talented enough to create music for all Got these it. parts yeah yeah that music really goes through a, a large change at this point in time and and uh yeah I, I mean it's it's weird that the church resisted polyphony for as long as they did because at the same point in time throughout the world it's been developed all sorts of other places mm-hmm. but they just they, they were really uh, invested in sort of the order of music, having it like very 
geometric almost. It was very mathematical music and, um, and everything that they chose for it had a very specific philosophical purpose mm-hmm. when people just kind of like wanted to cut loose because there's one other thing that I didn't do before. Why don't we do one more here? Sure. Which is that I was playing in a minor key, which sounds really kind of solemn. Yeah. Kind of solemn and a bit of a downer. Yeah. I mean, it's in tone from what you would hear in a church, right? Right. It makes sense. But what they were most afraid of, maybe not most afraid of. Is joyful exuberance. Well, they were they were very afraid of people doing something like this. Playing the same thing. Which is the exact same melody. Yeah. Slightly different counterpoint but in a major key mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not the sort of vibe you want. No, it's not. And, <laughs> and they resisted it strongly, but that's a thing you can do with music very yep. easily. Yeah. Didn't sound, didn't look like, I mean, I don't know, but you had your hands in very similar places. Uh, they were in almost the exact same places. Yeah. Uh, just shifted slightly. Yeah. It, it's, it's again, Literature and music are probably the most overlooked portions, I think, of the of the Renaissance. So there were, there were a couple of things I honestly wasn't expecting to talk about today, so there yeah. you go. I overlooked them. <laughs> I, well, I mean, that's why we bring them on the show. Right? Well, and I mean, maybe it's just because of what I've learned before and who I am is that when I consider, oh, this was a huge time for the arts, I'm like, okay, visual arts. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Well, and I mean, I think part of that is that there are some very strong contenders for very great works of art from this time period mm-hmm. that are almost all within one or two disciplines. Yeah, yeah, of course. But um, I don't know. It's just that I, I don't think as much about these other art forms that, uh, of course, are super important. <laughs> of course. Well, I think I, I think it says something to the proliferation of the arts in this time period that they can be going through one of the biggest literary and musical revolutions yeah. of Western history. Yes, they're, they're expanding all by... the arts simultaneously in several directions. <laughs> yeah, it's still overshadowed by all of this other stuff to the point where it often gets like, a couple sentences in a textbook or something. Yeah, it's yeah. an honorary mention. A line and a half. Several instruments were invented, including these. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> well, those uh, those really big ones mm-hmm. are what I have next on my list. So this might be a good place to stop part one. Sure. Get everybody uh, ready for psyched up our big dive into painting and sculpture and architecture. Woo! Woo! So let's stop it there, and uh, we'll get into the visual arts next time. Awesome. The beginning of the Renaissance resulted from a convergence of various factors that, on their own, honestly didn't mean much at all culturally. Increased wealth, an oligarchical republican city-state political system, a migration of intellectuals, a new school of philosophy, and the secularization of art. But when combined, they led to some of the most iconic cultural works of Western civilization. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about some of the most iconic, especially in painting and sculpture. That episode will be up on May 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.